I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. A popular past show was on the theme of music, led by my guest Andrew Norman of here, Nebraska. This show continues that theme with a focus on the Maha Music Festival this weekend in Omaha, and my guest to explore all things music and Maha is David Leibowitz. David Leibowitz is a lifelong music fan and record collector. He first entered the music business as a teenager in the 1980s when he published his own fanzine dedicated to the band Kiss. In the 90s, he formed his own independent record label, Mafia Money Records, where he produced and released records from artists around the country. For the last 13 years, he has hosted the weekly radio show New Day Rising, which introduces listeners to new independent artists. In addition to the radio show, he also hosts the YouTube channel The Dark Stuff, which focuses on record collecting and live music concerts. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks. How are you? I'm great, thanks. I'm great. Thank you very much. I have to confess that I really know very little about music. I've discovered that about you, Stuart, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You're very passionate about a few artists, but that's, that's, that's the way most people are, honestly. It definitely feels like a very notable, sophisticated music festival now, one that I think any community would be proud of. Well, I, I've used the term before of a boutique festival, okay? Now, some people kind of frown when I say that, and they're like, I don't know about that. Now, the reason why I say it's a boutique festival is because you get top-notch talent. Like in this case, a headliner like Run the Jewels, or they had Garbage a few years ago, or they had um, you know, Death Cab for Cutie or whatever. You get top-notch talent, but you don't have to deal with like 50,000 people as if you were at another festival in another market, or even, it doesn't even have to do with size. It has to do with mostly they just try to pack as many people in. This is like nine, 10,000 people at the most. So you're not feeling so overwhelmed with just the amount, because I get stressed out with, you know, 50,000 people around. I don't like it. And not only that, with most festivals with multiple stages, um, somebody who comes to the festival has to make a choice. Okay, well, at one o'clock, I should really like to see artist A, but then over on the same stage across the, you know, across the, the fair or whatever is artist B that I'd really like to see too. I'm going to have to make a choice. Maha doesn't force you to make a choice because when one stage ends, five minutes later, the next stage starts and they're both next to each other. So all you have to do is kind of either just tilt your body to the other direction or just walk a few feet to the other space. So it's unique in that regard. So maybe before we play some tracks, we'll talk about the lineup in a minute for this year's Maha Music Festival. But before we get to that, maybe just talk a little bit about what uh, an attendee at the event might expect. There's a lot more going on than just the music. There's a whole, you know, Maha, from what I understand from the founders of the festival, they really wanted it to emphasize the community in Omaha and show the various aspects of the arts community. Um, there's also a lot of, of corporate sponsors. So there is aspects of the business community and they really want to show, run the gamut of, of the sort of the scene here. So in addition to there being music, they've also got comedy, they've got art space um, where artists are displaying their things. They have a poetry jam. They have, um, I know that the Omaha Girls Rock, which is like young teenage girls that play music, they have a place at this thing. There's some high school poetry thing that goes on. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of that one, but uh, they'll they'll be at the festival. So it really runs the gamut. It's more than just people kind of hanging out watching bands. There's a lot of other things to do. So it is, it's, you know, a festival that's friendly with for kids. It's like a kid-friendly festival at the same time. 
So this is a music show about a music festival, and you are a music guy, so I think we obviously need to play something. Sure. And you've kindly provided a playlist, and we'll talk through the lineup for Maha, but first up on your playlist is Run the Jewels from... Uh, it's called Run the Jewels from Run the Jewels. Makes it album. very easy when the artist, the song, and the album all have the same name. Although I seem to stumble through all, <laughs> all, <of the laughs> all iterations of it, <laughs> found a way. But no, it makes it very easy. This is a, the type, not, not too many artists, a lot of artists have a self titled album. Not every artist has a, their title song as well. So Run the Jewels is, is, is rare among artists for that. So before we talk about Run the Jewels a little bit, let's, let's play some of their music. All right. So we were just listening to Run the Jewels by Run the Jewels from the album Run the Jewels. Keeps it easy to remember. I, I've, I've been <laughs> perfecting that now. What should we know about Run the Jewels? Run the Jewels is one of the uh, one of the hotter independent hip hop artists of the last couple of years. It's uh, a guy named Killer Mike, who's the MC, and LP is his DJ. LP's been around for a while as a producer. He's from New York. I want to say Killer Mike is from the South. I'm thinking Georgia, but I'm not 100%. I'm pretty sure he's from Atlanta. And the two of them have been together. They've made three albums, and they just exploded onto the scene. I mean, um, like I said, LP has been around for a while as a background artist and producer and stuff, but he's never had this kind of success. The two of them put together just has just done really really well for both of them it's they're great they're unique hip-hop because they have a, an old school feel while still sounding very modern and current and stuff like that but they don't they don't play up into well i don't know i guess i wouldn't want to characterize their lyrics or anything but they they do seem different from most of of modern hip-hop in a way just because they're kind of approaching it from a different perspective i suppose but um i don't know i, I, I guess that would be how i would describe them they're considered the main attraction. And I know a lot of people are excited because I don't believe Run the Jewels has ever been to uh, the Omaha area before, as far as I know. Well, why don't we, uh, in that case, take it to a very local perspective and maybe select an act from the lineup that is um, possibly very well known to uh, the local community? Well, there are three locals on the bill this year. Okay, so you've got the faint who are from Omaha, but they are also internationally known. They've been successful since the late 90s. Um, they've also performed at Maha before. I, th- I want to say 2010, 2011 period when they did it. So they're, as far as I know, they're the first artist to ever repeat 
to come on and do Maha twice. I don't, I don't think anyone's ever done that before. There's also the High Up, which is an up-and-coming uh, local band that does feature Todd from The Faint, uh, the singer of The Faint, but he plays and uh, he's a guitar player in The High Up. His wife, Arenda Fink, who's in the band Azure Ray, and she's a solo artist and everything. She's in the band. Her sister is uh, the singer, Christine Fink. I'm 98% sure that's correct. And then uh, the drummer is this guy named Matt Foch. And he is, uh, his main band is called Head of Femur, but he also has played in Bright Eyes and a number of other uh, bands too. And then the Hotman Sisters are another local. They're, um, I'm not as familiar with their what they're doing. I did see them recently uh, at a show opening for somebody else, um, but I'm not super familiar with their music, to be totally candid with you. Looking forward to seeing what, what they have to offer. Well, I think in that case, we should maybe play something from the Hotman Sisters. Do you feel shaken down and out of a level? Drop bones collecting dust off the thought of who you are. Are you burning by time from plastic duck marks? Measure perspective by life. Good, you still move on. That was the single Cats from the album This Too by the Hotman Sisters. So they will be performing on Saturday at the Maha Music Festival. David, I want to ask you about your own excursions into the music business and perhaps the... I've had a few. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we start with, uh, with Kiss? Okay, well, when I was a teenager, early teens, probably like 13, 14, I was like, I became obsessed with Kiss. Okay, they were my absolute favorite band. And I, I, could, I didn't care about anything else musically at that point. That was kind of a low career point for them. This is probably like 84, 85, you know, that sort of period. It was not a high in their career trajectory. It was a real low point. So they were real supportive of anyone that would donate their own time and effort to making like a fanzine for the band. So I went ahead and did one. And this is in the days, of course, before word processor. So I had to type it on a typewriter and use cut and paste with like tape and go to, uh, you know, copy machines and make them make the zines myself. And of course, I didn't have a reporting staff. So most of the information I put in my fanzine was stuff I found out in other magazines and stuff. But um, I did that and I was able to meet the band a couple of times. They were real appreciative of the fact that I put that effort forth for doing it. And it kind of you know, wet my appetite for, for being involved in, in music. And after doing that for a couple of years, I changed course and I did a, a, my own music magazine, a, a partner of mine and I did it. We did one issue, realized how complicated and how expensive and how difficult it was. 
But we sent out the one issue, which we sold in locally in consignment and stuff at record stores and whatnot. And we sold, we sent copies to all of the the publicists at all the record companies. We got free records for the next like three years out of that one issue until people realized there was never going to be another one. And then they stopped sending us the records. But I mean, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't a scheme to get free records, but it worked out that way because we only did the one issue. But that was what I did. And then I went to college. And uh, after I, I left, uh, after college was over, I was in Seattle and I was interning for a, a music publicist out there, this woman named Jenny Body. And um, she was talking about hiring me on uh, to work for her. But then she got a job working for Interscope Records, which was a new label at the time. This was Jimmy Iovine and, and those people. Okay. So she was like, I'm really sorry, but. Basically, I'm moving to L.A. and there is no more job because there's no more company. So at that point, she helped me out by getting me an internship with a, another record label. And this was 1992, 93 in Seattle, which was the peak of their music, the music uh, scene going on there. The Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, all of that stuff. So it was a pretty crazy time to have been around there. I got an internship with an indie record label there called Empty Records and what I realized really quickly was that I didn't want to work up the ladder. I already had my own ideas about what I wanted to do for my own label. And I just was like, I'm just going to do it. There's no point waiting. What I've learned from these guys, I will apply. But basically, I'm also learning that if you want to get anything done, you got to do it yourself and you have to be willing to to try. So that was that. Was that. And I left Seattle and uh, I started the, the record company at that point, about 1994. Now seems to be the right time to play something from Kiss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is what is the song that I'm going to play? Well, we're going to play Detroit Rock City. It's one of their better known songs. Uh, it's from 1976. Most people, when they think of Kiss, you know, for me, I I don't try to convince people to like Kiss, okay? Either you do or you don't. And I think you had to really, to appreciate them, you had to get into them when you were... 11 or 12. Okay. Because if you come at it as an adult, it's not going to work for you. Okay. If you started when you were 11 and now you're 40, it still translates. But if you start at 40, it's never going to work. For you. If you start at 20, frankly, it's never going to work for you. It's adolescent music. So you have to get into it from that vibe. Detroit Rock City is an important song for the band because Detroit was a big city for them where they first sort of made it and they could play arenas and this kind of thing. So it was a tribute to the city of Detroit.
So that was Detroit Rock City from the album Destroyer by the band Kiss. So you mentioned Mafia Money Records yes. as your own label. I started it in uh, 1994. And I actually, when I was, I was still living in Seattle at the time, but I knew I was going to leave because Seattle, because the, the music scene was exploding there because of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all of that and Nirvana. And, and it was very hard to sort of get a foot in from a label perspective, because if you found a good band, they would be immediately snatched up by, you know, the labels that discovered those other bands, you know, so you were now the littlest fish in the pond. So I decided I, you know, cause I was like, Oh, with technology today, you know, 1994, all you need is a fax machine and a telephone. I can be based anywhere. Right. So I decided to go back to Wisconsin, do the show or do the label from there. But I had already contacted an artist from, um, uh, from San Francisco, the band Hugh. And I told, I wrote them a letter. Cause of course this is pre email. And I said, uh, I said, um, listen, I'm going to be starting a label. I'm currently interning at this other place, but when I start the label, I'd like to release your record. And they, I put my phone number in there and said, just please call me if you're interested. And all of a sudden they just called me up and we're like, yeah, okay, we're interested. And that was how the label really started. You know, I didn't, because I was coming from a perspective of never having done anything, I kind of thought, well, these artists aren't going to want to go with me. I mean, I'm going to have to, I mean, but they were interested right from the get go. So it was like, oh, okay, this works. So I put out, I ended up doing like three singles with them and three full length albums. How did you make the choice? What sort of criteria did you have to and the criteria was all The criteria was all my personal preference what I liked because I I had an opportunity I had opportunities when I got out of college to sort of work in the traditional music industry but I knew one of the things that I didn't like about it was I didn't want to have to you know there was so much bad music out there that I really wanted to be responsible for something good okay I wanted to say that I personally stand behind Everyone that I'm working with, there's no, oh, we just signed them to make a bunch of money so that it'll pay for these other artists, which is what the major label system does. You know, for every Madonna that makes them millions of dollars, there's, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen, which make them nothing. Right. But that's the balance of the industry. But I didn't want to have to do that. I wanted to just work on stuff that I like. So it's all personal preference, strictly. And a willingness to work with me, frankly. Like, if they weren't interested, then I didn't like them, and then we moved on. Are you suggesting that you're a, you're a difficult media mogul to work with? Then? No, not at all. In fact, um, I recently uh, interviewed um, um, on my podcast uh, he, Dave Rosenheim from the band Hugh, which I signed. And I told him, I said, you know, my one regret with working with you guys is the very first single we did – I didn't like the song you guys chose. And he said, really? And I said, I didn't like it. I liked the B-side better, but I didn't feel like I, I didn't want to be a jerk and say like, no, you can't do this. Um, because I thought that's infringing on your artistic expression. And I didn't want to be Mr. Business Guy saying that's wrong. And then he was like, well, maybe you should have, you know, <laughs> whatever, like all these years later, he's like, well, maybe you should have, you know, it was like, maybe I should have. Yeah. But I didn't feel that was my position. So um, I kind of revealed that in a sense that I was like, oh, wow, you know, I, I actually the very first release on my very first on my label was a song I didn't even really like, even though I make this big spiel about how everything is supposed to be what I like. 
but I did. I just didn't care for that particular song. I liked the other side of the record better. So in that sense, I started labeling them A and double A. So there was no B side. That was my subtle thing of like, they're both good. So feel free to play the other side if you want to. I kept the pillow. You slept on. It's hard for people nowadays to remember what it was like, but there was such an intense division between an independent artist and like a major label artist in the 90s. Now there's almost no difference because the record industry is so screwed up. But at the time, there was a very, very big distinction and artists that went to the major label system were looked at suspiciously. And if you came from the independent underground scene and then you made the jump, you were automatically assumed that you were a sellout and you were just you know, you're fake or you're whatever. And now it seems really silly because some of the artists that were accused of that, like Nirvana or whatever, the idea that Nirvana was fake is like so ridiculous on its face that it just seems silly that people would actually debate that at some point. But that was a serious contention, you know, and it was, it was just such a different world back then. So let's take this opportunity to look again at the bands performing at the Maha Music Festival. And the full lineup is uh, the Hotman Sisters, Downtown Boys, High Up, Torres, Priests, The New Pornographers, Built to Spill, Bell and Sebastian, Sleigh Bells, The Faint, and Run the Jewels. Who should we listen to now? Well, I'd say uh, maybe we listen to a little bit of The Faint. Um, I chose the song Paranoia Attack, um, which is uh, an older song of theirs, but I think it's my favorite song that the band has done. And it's it's a song that um, I'm sure they're still going to play in their set. I don't I don't know that. It's not like they're they're sending me smoke signals as far as what they're playing. But I just remember at the time that it came out, they had they had a great visual component to their show with lots of screens with all these images. And it was 2004. I remember when it came out. The height of the Iraq war, the George W. Bush re-election, he was up against John Kerry that year. So it was very politically charged imagery that was synced perfectly with the music. It was very cool presentation. And even though the the topic, the topic is still very relevant today. So I just chose that one because I think it's my favorite song by them. And, and uh, they still put on a pretty impressive show from what I understand. So let's hear Paranoia Attack from the album Capsule 1999 to 2016 from The Fame. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Without a cure, it took forever to 
Chittenden and my guest today is David Leibowitz. Touchdown in Kansas, instinct takes over, instinct commands us, mostly okay, but I'm bleeding profusely, so that last track was rule number one by Sleigh Bells from their album Jessica Rabbit, and Sleigh Bells will of course be performing at the Maha Music Festival. So I look at all these acts, David, that are scheduled to appear, and I, I wonder how uh, organizers go about this act or art of curating the lineup. Well, they get their ideas from a number of different places. I mean, on the one hand, they do ask people who go to the festival, who would you like to see at next year's festival? Okay, so they do poll people, well, who would you like to see next year? I also know that the people who are behind it, the Maha board, does ask various people in the music community, music and arts community locally, who they think should be on there. They always, they ask me every year, do you have any suggestions, you know? And I think it goes into a general pool. And then the people who are the higher ups at Maha, the senior people work with 1% and figure out what they can functionally, you know, who they can functionally get. I mean, it might be nice to say, hey, we'd love to have Arcade Fire, you know, but the Arcade Fire could want more than a million dollars to perform. Well, that's not inside the, the, the realm of realism for Maha, you know, and I don't know what their numbers are, what their budget is. I have no idea. You know, I'm not involved in it that deeply, but I would have to say that probably a million dollars is probably out of whack for what they could afford. So they have to decide what major talent can they get within their, within their budget, what will work what flows well with the rest of the thing. They always have a local component. So that's why they have artists like the faint and the high up and Hotman sisters, because they want local artists to be featured as well. They usually have some representative from Saddle Creek records, like an artist that's on that label. 
um, because that's a record label from around here and, and uh, there's some significance to that. So I think it comes together in those kinds of things. I mean, it's a generally an indie music festival, but in this year, like they have hip hop and they do have other types of music. So it's not strictly, you know, just uh, like twee indie pop or whatever, you know, you don't have to, you can, I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't know what else I'm saying, but I mean, that's, that's sort of where it's at. It's a, there's no definitive, you know, thing we have to have, well, this one artist fits this box, this artist fits this box, this artist fits that box. It's not really like that. They do try to get as many opinions as possible, but then they also have to narrow it down based on availability, based on financial issues, based on, you know, what flows with what's already been booked. I mean, if you already know you're going to have run the jewels as a headliner, then how does that affect who else you're going to pick? And, you know, they, they all work it out. I mean, this is done planning for Maha 2018 begins the day after Maha 2017. It's a year long process pretty much. So who else from the lineup would you like to highlight and perhaps talk about a little further? Well, for me, I think a really good get for this year's festival is Bell and Sebastian because they haven't played here in maybe 15 years or so. They're from Scotland, so they don't tour in the United States that much. You know, they're, they're more of a, uh, they tour Europe a lot more than they, they tour the States. So I think from that angle, they're a really good get because um, you don't see them very often. And it's something that I think a lot of people have on their bucket list of like, oh man, someday I'd really love to see Bell and Sebastian. And uh, so there's kind of like a bucket list band for a lot of people. And I would say Built to Spill, just on a personal level, is probably my favorite artist performing. I've been a fan of them since they started in 1993. I've seen them in multiple incarnations of the band. They were a trio, then they were a four-piece, then they were a five-piece. Now they're back to a trio. Uh, I've seen them in big places and small places, you know. So I've never seen them in a festival, so that'll be different for that. So I'm still pretty excited to see them, even though I've probably seen them ten times. You know, they always, to me, they always deliver the goods. Well, of course, I'm delighted as an expat to know that some Glaswegians uh, and other Scottish brethren are going to be uh, in town. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we listen to uh, We Were Beautiful from We Were Beautiful by Bell and Sebastian. Beautiful, before this went down 
So that was Bella and Sebastian's We Were Beautiful, and they'll be performing at the Maha Music Festival. You mentioned something earlier about the music industry having changed substantially. In fact, you described it in more, slightly more negative terms <laughs> than that. <laughs> so, yeah. so you've seen a lot. You've been involved in the music in- industry in various ways for a long time. So what sort of comments and observations do you have about, about it now? I mean, I guess what I would say is in the 90s when I started getting into it, there was this big debate between, you know, independent versus major. But there was also just a thing about everybody sort of understood, okay, the music industry is corrupt. Uh, the labels take all the money. The artists get screwed. The, you know, it's not it's not fair. It's, you know. But now you realize that system was a million times more fair than what it is now. So even though there were a lot of people getting ripped off in the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, they at least got paid something. Maybe not what they they deserved or what they were owed or what is morally due to them, but at the same time, they got paid something. Now, they get paid virtually nothing. Artists, it, it, it used to be that touring was done to support album sales. So you put on an album, a band goes out on tour, and the purpose of the tour is to help sell the album. Nowadays, it's the opposite. You put on an album to promote the tour. Because nobody cares about the album anymore. But if you were just here last year, now you need a new reason to be here for this year. So now it worked out on tour supporting our new album. So the dynamic has changed. It's made people, I think, value music less, which is part of my issue with things like Spotify and streaming services, which I realize I'm an old codger here and it, I'm, it's not going to be the way that I like it. It's going to be the way of of people don't buy music anymore. They buy access to music. It's the same with like Netflix with with movies. People are buying fewer like DVDs and Blu-rays because they just pay their monthly thing to Netflix and they have access to it, but they don't actually own their own personal copy of it. That's the way music is going. And I think it's made people devalue music. And that's why some people are like, well, I'm not going to pay $1.29 for a track or whatever. It's like... Dollar twenty nine, you'll pay five dollars for a coffee. Like, how do you, how do you not justify a dollar twenty nine? And of that, maybe a penny is going to go to the artist, you know. And that's even if you purchase it. Talking about streaming is a totally other other business. Outside of people like mega stars, you know, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, etc., uh, Beyonce, stuff like that. Very few people are making any money off of those systems. I mean, I've interviewed artists who said they'll get a check and it'll be like eight cents, you know. And you're just sort of like, it's not even worth it to go cash that check. You know, it's more like I'd rather just take a picture of it and frame, or frame it or something and say, look, I got this eight cent check. Look how funny that is. Do you think there are fewer kids in the garage you know, knocking around with their musical instruments now and wanting to be in a band and just pursuing that dream? You know, I don't think so, actually. I think people are still, they, they believe in that dream because they don't understand what's out there and what the new business model is. Now, maybe there's going to be a new model that's going to work for artists at some point in the future, but it certainly hasn't been identified yet. But I still think that idea of like, I want to get out there and I want to do it and whatever. And it's also pretty encouraging this vinyl revival. I mean, I do knock it in some respects because it's driven prices up and that's sort of the opposite of the way I understood capitalism to work. Like when there's more demand, uh, you know, you work with supply and demand and, and it's sort of like when more people are into something, then the cost should go down. More people are into vinyl, but the cost goes up. So it's not doesn't work exactly along the principles of capitalism that it's supposed to, I suppose. 
but um, at least it's people buying a physical medium and they're still getting like, I, I love going into a store and seeing like a young teenager flipping through stacks of records because that was something I didn't see for a really long time. And that's returning. But as far as the idea of wanting to be in a band and whatever, and, and I think people are still just as interested as before. They just, their motivation for it is maybe different than what the motivation was 25 years ago, but they still want to create. Um, and I still think that's the, the, the main driving force. Business stuff usually comes after the fact, after you realize you signed away all your rights and all your money, and then you realize, oh, I probably should have had a lawyer or something at some point along the line. Do you ever have a, a sense of nostalgia at any time? Notwithstanding we're in the 21st century, the digital landscape is predominant. Do you ever think you'd like to set up something old school again, like a music publication? Um, I, I think about it all the time and I've had opportunities to revive my record label, Mafia Money Records. I've had people present the idea, but I've never gone through with it. And that's largely because I just know that part of the time while I was in it back in the nineties, it's sort of like, yeah, I'm loving every minute of it and whatever. But at the same time, it also was starting to make me hate music to a certain extent. Like when it became associated with stress and with losing a lot of money and with those kinds of things, it started to have a negative effect on me. And basically I stopped enjoying music and I was realizing that it's all because of this and it's all because um, it's now associated with like a job and stress and financial problems and all of this. And so I sort of had to come up to a point where I had to decide, I mean, am I going to just... I can't continue if I just don't like what I'm doing anymore and this is causing so much stress. So to a certain degree, I do have a nostalgia for that period because I still like the music from the 90s, probably the best. I don't want to sound like an old guy. Like my era was the best, you know, because when I was growing up in the 80s, it was all the old 60s guys that would say, oh, no, the 60s were the best. Now, you know, I don't I don't play that game, but I do like that era in a sense where there was the record store era where if people wanted new music, there was a place for them to go and there were multiple places to go and all kinds of people from all walks of life all went to the record store. And um, so I miss that sense of it. Um, I liked that the, the whole picking up the physical medium and that kind of thing. I mean, uh, I know vinyl's real trendy now, but it was never not my format. So I know most people abandoned vinyl in the late 80s, early 90s, and now it's they're back to it now, 30 years later, 25 years later. But I never abandoned it in the first place. So I'm not nostalgic in that sense. But yeah, I, I think about it, but uh, I just know that with that, every time, you know, comes a lot of, of unnecessary baggage with it, I guess. So kind of mixed feeling. A previous episode of this show that can be heard on uh, the iTunes podcast of the show, but it featured Kate Dussault from the Hi-Fi House. Yeah, and she's re-energized. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I I love the Hi-Fi House. I think it's a great spot. And one of my favorite shows of my life took place there when Tommy Stinson from the Replacements uh, did a show there, and it was. Uh, I'm so glad that I was able to attend because I wasn't a member. I I got an invite through a friend and, and was able to to go to it. But uh, yeah, that still ranks as one of my favorite shows of all time. So no, I love that place. I think it's great. So I would encourage people to listen to your show, New Day Rising, and of course to 
listen to your YouTube show and the podcast, The Dark Stuff, and we'll be providing links to those on our own Facebook page, Lives Radio Show. But for now, why don't we play one of your favorite bands and maybe you'd introduce um, The Replacements. Sure. Well, um, The Replacements are among my favorite bands. And for me, when I was describing what I want to do with starting my record label, my goal was to find the next replacements. Like I wanted to be the one responsible for bringing the world the next replacements. And there is no other replacement. So I didn't find the next replacements, obviously, but they still hold a very, very significant place to me. And I still measure almost every rock band against them, even though it's not fair, but I still do it. Ah, this is a song called Alex Chilton. Um, Alex Chilton was a guy from the band Big Star. And this was a lot of people my era never heard of the man, never heard of Alex Chilton or his band Big Star until this song came out and then everybody wondered, well, who's this Alex Chilton guy? And they kind of looked backwards. That's how I did it. That's how a lot of people did it. That's how I discovered his music. So it serves a double purpose. On the one hand, it's a great replacement song. On the other hand, it introduces people to this obscure guy from the 70s who was supposed to be a next big thing and it didn't happen for him. And uh, so that's that's why. It has double meaning, I guess, for that that song. Alex Chilton from Please to Meet Me by The Replacements. What musical memories or moments really stand out for you? I mean, I've had a lot. I've been fortunate. I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of my um, musical idols over the years, which can be good or bad. I mean, depending on how the experience goes, I've had both. But generally, I've had pretty positive ones. When I was a kid, I was able to meet Kiss a couple of times when I was doing that fanzine. I met the replacements at the height of their uh, popularity. That was both a positive and a negative. Um, recently, um, I was able to um, hang out and actually have what I viewed as a substantive conversation with Mac McCann from the band Superchunk, a group I've liked for more than 25 years. And, uh, you know, we didn't become best friends, but I felt like we had a serious conversation. Um I've done some good interviews on my uh, on the dark stuff. 
my interview with St. Vincent still is my absolute favorite interview that I've ever done. I've never had an, uh, anyone in an interview sort of at one point when you ask a question, maybe you've had this, they sort of don't really want to answer the question. So they sort of talk around it. But then she came back specifically to that question like five minutes later, like she'd been thinking about it the whole time and had a, a response for it. I was like, wow, that's good. You know, that's like I, I've never really had anyone. Usually they don't want to answer a question. They're just going to move on. She actually did bring it back. So I thought that was pretty cool. But, um, you know, doing the Maha Festival the last couple of years has been great. Um, getting the whole behind the scenes thing, seeing the replacements reunion. I did see the Kiss reunion in 1996, opening night, Tiger Stadium in Detroit, uh, when they reunited with the original lineup. So I've had a couple of highlights like that, I would say. So thinking about Maha. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Bell and Sebastian being, for you, you thought quite a, a good catch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who else? Well, same with the new pornographers, I would say, because they are sort of an indie rock super group. Now, they tour... America, because there are American, or well, one of them, one or two of them are Canadian, I think, but they do tour the States a lot more than, say, a Bell and Sebastian. So you will have more opportunities to see them. But because they're kind of a super group, they feature um, AC Newman, who's the, sort of the founder of the band, Dan Behar, who usually is in his group Destroyer, Nico Case, who's a successful solo artist. So you don't always get to see all these people on stage at once. So it is kind of a, a cool thing from that perspective in that um, it's a super group that's actually lasted for 15, well, 17 years at this point. Usually they'll do a one-off thing. You'll get a couple of people from different groups. They'll do one record together and then they all go back to their other stuff. New Pornographers are still doing it 17 years later. They're actually their own independent thing, not really a side project anymore. It's hard to, I mean, because most people, I'd say uh, New Pornographers sell more albums and are more popular than any of their individual artists now. So this is their number one thing. So I think uh, that's another good get. And, you know, Run the Jewels is very hot too. So, that, I mean, that's another positive getting them for the bill, no doubt. Well, why don't we listen to a little of High Ticket Attractions by the new pornographers from their album Whiteout Conditions. High ticket attractions from the album Whiteout Conditions by the new pornographers. So, what are you most looking forward to 
uh, this uh, for this music festival? Well, you know, I do want to see the spectacle of Run the Jewels, okay? Because I've never seen them before. Never seen Bell and Sebastian. Um, like I said, I say overall, Built to Spill is probably my favorite artist of all of them uh, that's performing this year. They're going to be different because they're going they're going back to being a trio where they've been as much as a six piece band. They're going to revert back to trio status for this current tour. So that could that could be really special. Or, you know, who knows? I mean, it'll be something different, but either way, it will be not what most people are expecting who've seen the band before, because they've been this like wall of sound with like three, four guitar players, and now they're just going to have the one. So it will be a different, a different vibe for sure. So I'm looking forward to those, I'd say. Well, we will go out on Built to Spill, but before we do so, what is next for you personally in the music industry, if we prognosticate into the future and, and what, um, what do you think is the next stage of the music business at large? I mean, those are very good questions, hard ones to answer. As far as me personally, um, I continue doing the radio show um, as long as they'll allow me to do it. And uh, as long as I still like doing it, um, I'm going to continue with the Dark Stuff channel on YouTube, which is um, where my head's at, what I enjoy the most right now, because it's just it's free forum. It's just talking about music. As far as the, um, the where the music business is going, your guess is as good as anybody's because I really don't see it, it doesn't seem sustainable to me the way this is going because there are still mega artists, your Katy Perry's, your Taylor Swift's. So there's money to be made in the music business, but at the same time, it's it used to be just a few artists made it and most people were sort of in the middle, but you could still make a career out of that. Now it's your Katy Perry or your broke. Okay, there's no middle ground. I mean, none whatsoever. That to me doesn't seem sustainable. Artists can't live solely off touring. You can do that, but if you keep playing the same cities over and over and over, eventually your draw does diminish and you can't ask for more money than you got last time because there's going to be fewer people there because you've been playing here so often. So it is going to damage a lot of artists who just aren't going to be able to make a living. And for me, I'd rather, I mean, it's important to me that people can make a living off of their art. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be like, you know, again, nobody needs to, to live the Beyonce lifestyle. I mean, it'd be great if you can do it, but that's not for everybody. But there has to be somewhere else where you could still make a decent living doing this. And it's getting harder and harder. And I don't know what the answer is, but uh, I don't like the fact that the industry is heading towards paying for access to music as for, instead of paying for music. To me, there's a, it's a big difference. It's psychological. I know that kids today, my brother has two step kids and the idea of buying an album to them is a totally foreign concept. Why would you want to do that? You know, they at literally, why would you want to do that? You can just listen to it right here on the internet. Well, okay. But if no money's going into the system as ridiculously bad as it was, there will be no system at some point. And I think people will really regret that when, when, when that happens, which I hope it's not inevitable, but it sure seems that way.
To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with a lifelong music fan, record collector, and music promoter, David Leibowitz. David, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.